0: Zechariah 9, 1 through 8. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions. And strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashad, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth, and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant of our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes.
1: I love that song. Uh, We know that God moves in mysterious ways. I love that line that he's his own interpreter. That should cause us to pause before we say, well, I think it says this. God interprets his own word. For those of you who have been here for several weeks, um, we're we're to the second stage of Zechariah. We've preached through and taught through chapters 1 through 8. And uh, we had a little teaching on the church last week. We'll inter-disperse those throughout the next several weeks. We're going to do nine for sure and maybe jump into ten as well. Uh, we're not going to do all of nine today. One through eight is sufficient. As you heard pastor reading through it, it it's codified. There, there are things in here that are difficult to understand, but by God's grace, we will work through this today together and and hear the incredible word of encouragement. And it is. This is a very powerful word of encouragement for those who were in Zechariah's time and for us today as well. Um, but we're hitting that section now for the next several chapters. If you were here in the very first sermon, I had talked about the two parts of the book, chapters 1 through 8. It's, even though it's prophetic and there's some apocalyptic language in there, you can, you can work your way through it. 9 through 14, they're hard. They're hard chapters. So much so, I told you Martin Luther in his first commentary he blew right by chapter 14, did not comment on it. The second time he came around, he said, I do not know what the prophet is treats. I don't know what he's saying. And that was all he said. So um, I, I pray that we're patient. I know that pastors have skipped over Zechariah because it's hard. But, uh, I mean, I, have, I hope you have been blessed. I've been so blessed by the gems that we found in the first eight chapters. So immeasurably blessed. And I hope that we can find, they're, they're there in the next several as well, um, but we have to be patient, um, and we have to have ears to hear and not stop up our ears and harden our hearts, diamond heart as we know, Zechariah said, to see some of these gems as well. A lot of them, um, the themes are pulled back out of chapters 1 through 8, and there's greater detail. So he goes into um, a, a better explanation or greater depth on some of the same things god 's future, the future of his people in Jerusalem, um, the theme of him cleansing for himself a holy people to bring him honor and glory. Uh, we saw that permeate the first eight chapters. this idea that his kingdom will be a place for many, not just those who were born of the blood of Abraham, but for many nations. And so as we enter this this section. I don't want you to be overwhelmed. Um, it is, it's hard to even get a time on it. Uh, chapters 1 through 8, we knew the month and the day that the dialogue was happening, which is a real, it's a, it's an amazing thing to look back. We get into 9, and there's great speculation on when it was talking, when uh, God was talking to the prophet Zechariah. Most think it was 15 to 20 years or so after the temple was finished. Um, And that makes sense. They they completed the temple, and now there's this immediate expectation of God fulfilling all these promises that he gave, and they weren't being fulfilled. And so the people, some became complacent, others became discouraged. Others, as we know from Ezra and from Malachi, they just engaged in disobedience. They just started to sin. And so God comes in here in, in a very powerful way, And he brings a word to get them back on track again. Um, And so we're going to see that this morning, and by God's grace, a few other things. Is that me, Brandon? Please fix that if you can. Um, Three things I want to look at this morning the foolishness of self reliance, the hope of the foolish, and the security of the remnant. The foolishness of being self reliant, going your own way. The hope of the foolish, or the hope for the foolish, and the security of the remnant. Let's look at the first point, the foolishness of the self-reliant. Nations throughout human history have risen to great prominence. We used to call them empires, right? And we can go all the way back to you know some of the early empires that we deal with even in this text. Whether you go back to Egypt or to Israel or to Assyria or Babylon or the Persian Empire to Greece and to Rome, right up to the time of Christ. Uh, We saw movements in more contemporary history of empires as well. Great Britain, Spain, France, the United States, the Soviet Union, China. And so these nations would rise up and they, they would exercise their power throughout large portions of the earth. Without exception, every single one of these major movements, these major national movements started or ended with a reliance upon themselves, their power, their money, their geographic location, their technology, their wisdom. And all those in antiquity, we see that their end was destruction. They weren't relying upon God. They weren't seeking his face or his blessings. They were trying to do their exercise of power apart from him. In chapter, chapter 9, verse 1, God says, For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. In other words, all the movements in human history, all the nations as they move, God is aware and he's acting. And the promised land, Palestine, the nations that were read to you, the ones that you heard, they were part of a, a pentapolis And they were in the geographic region of Palestine, the promised land. The land that was specifically promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, when God said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. Palestine. And so we have the generation of Zechariah hearing all these promises in chapters 1 through 8. They finished the temple and now they wait for these blessings. And they don't come. And they wait, and they don't come. And they wait, and they don't come. And they look around, and within Palestine, they see all these other states, all these other foreign powers. And they're saying, why is it that we are still subject to a foreign crown when the very enemies of God have taken his land, occupied his land, and God's doing nothing about it? Or at least it seems like he's doing nothing about it. For those of you who know your Grecian history and the movement of Alexander the Great In 333 and 332 B.C., God did move just on his own timeline. The prophecy that takes place here is a vision to the future, both through Alexander the Great and then through Christ, and then through Christ coming again in glory in the end times. And so their lack of patience, which resulted in complacency, discouragement, and sin, wasn't because God wasn't active it's because it wasn't according to their timeline. They wanted God to work on their timeline. God always works on his own timeline. And we should be thankful for that because it's the best timeline. This prophecy pertaining to the movement of Alexander the Great is so specific that many Bible students do not believe that Zechariah wrote it. Zechariah is writing 160, 170 years before Alexander the Great. It's so specific and it's so directed that they have to conclude it was written by someone else other than Zechariah at a time after the actual events took place. But we are evangelical Bible-believing Christians and we believe that Zechariah wrote it 170 years before it happened and it's true because God said it. The Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote a 20-volume work called Jewish Antiquities. And in it, he traces Israel's history from Abraham all the way up to the time of the early church. And in it, he talks about Alexander the Great. And in it, he delineates the systematic movement from north to south of Alexander the Great coming in and destroying these nations. One by one, who had taken the promised land that belonged to Abraham and his children. I'm just going to walk through a couple of these because they're so extraordinary. We could spend hours on it. Starting north in Hadrach, presumed by many to be a city called Haratakita, and it's just below the Euphrates. Alexander goes in, and he overtakes the city. The same people in the same cities that were enemies of God and God's people Look at verses 1 and 2. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, they, though they are very wise. Hamath and Damascus, the Syrian capital today, they were both destroyed by Alexander as he made his way out of Egypt and then circled around from the top. Tyre and Sidon, both very powerful, very rich cities. In fact, Tyre was so well off for centuries. The city of Tyre was built on the coast, just like Santa Cruz, for those of you who know this area well. And there was an island about a mile offshore. They took their city and they replanted it on the island. And they built a double wall around it. It was considered a city that could not be taken. It was so, the stronghold was so powerful that the Assyrians tried for five years in 701 B.C. to take the city and they finally gave up the Babylonians came back in in, in 501, no I'm sorry in 587 and they tried for 13 years and they finally gave up they had a very strong navy they were plush as we see here from the, the verse they had lots of gold, lots of silver according to Ezekiel this was the city surrounded by the sea and Isaiah called it the fortress of the sea and it was considered a city that could not be broken Look at verse 3. Tyre built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud of the streets. Tyre was a perfect example of a city that did not think it needed God. It had security, it had prosperity, it had a navy, it engaged in, in trade, and it was wealthy. But when God determined that it was time for Tyre to fall, Tyre fell. Five years against the Assyrians, they could not take it. Thirteen years, the Babylonians could not take it. In seven months, Alexander the Great took the city of Tyre. In seven months. Why? God ordained it. Not only did he ordain it, the prophecy is so specific. Ezekiel 26, listen to this. This is about 250 years before Alexander the Great took the city of Tyre. Of Tyre... Ezekiel writes, They will plunder, speaking of Alexander the Great, they will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. This is so amazing. For those of you who are not encouraged by biblical prophecy, now is the time to be encouraged by it. Alexander went into the old city tire, literally tore it down, literally took the stone, the timber, and they tossed it into the sea to build the bridge to the island, to take the island exactly fulfilled. And in seven months, Tyre fell because God said, you will fall. The prophecy foretold here as it is throughout sacred scripture should cause us to rejoice knowing that God is sovereign and he works according to his timeline. Alexander took his campaign south to strongholds of Palestine with the sole exception of one city, Jerusalem. The only city that was spared was Jerusalem. Look at verses 5 and 6. Ashkelon shall see it. What shall they see? They shall see the destruction of Tyre, and they will be afraid. They gave up. They didn't even fight, they just gave up. Gaza, too, shall writhe in anguish. Ekron, also, because it hopes, its hopes are confounded. Because it saw Tyre fall. The king shall perish from Gaza. Remember that's important. Eschelon shall be uninhabited, and a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Philistine. Palestine. He makes his way south, and many of the cities are just giving up because if Tyre was going to fall, then they were all going to fall, except Gaza. Gaza, stiff-necked, said, We will fight. So they fought against Alexander the Great for five months. And what did he do? He went in after they're refusing to submit. He went in, he killed the king, and he destroyed the city entirely. No mercy on Gaza. They were writhing in agony. So Tyre was destroyed by fire, just as the prophecy had foretold. Gaza was writhing in pain, just as the prophecy had told. Gaza's king was killed, just as the prophecy was foretold. But more than just historical events, it's amazing, it is, that these were prophesied to and they were fulfilled. We should be in awe of this. But he didn't just give us this historical count so that we can look at the prophecy, see it fulfilled and say amen. He gives us this prophetic movement because this is dealing with all mankind, every nation, every people group and every person that, that moves against God to rely upon themselves, their own security, their own power, their own financial prowess, their own wisdom. God says, you do that as a church, as a people, as a nation individually. And God says this, set yourself up against me and my people. Take a stand on your own wisdom and your own skill and your own money. Put your hope and your security in gold or silver or pride or possessions in your marriage or your job or your ministry or your church or your education. He says, your end will be the same as that of Gaza and Tyre. We put our hope in anything other than Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross. Our end will be that of Gaza will be We will be writhing in agony. We will be devoured by fire. The Bible says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The place is a place where the worm never dies. A Christian must not love the world or the things of this world. A Christian must not put his hope in ter- temporal things like silver or gold or retirement or marriage, or children. The parallels between modern America and ancient Tyre are striking. And because I don't preach politics and don't preach on American agendas, I will just touch on this. With our military power, our financial success, and our technological advancements, we have become a very proud people. Americans have become a very proud people. Now, we should expect that apart from Jesus Christ, but that pride has made its way into the church and the church has become a very proud church, self-reliant church, on our finances, on our ministry, on our ability to do God's work. God has no desire for his children or his church to be proud or self-reliant American Christians. No desire. We are called by God to come out of her John says in Revelation 18, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. We are called to come out, to be a holy people, set apart by God to bring him honor and glory. Not self-reliant, not filled with pride. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12:14, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or bad. In other words, we cannot hide our pride and we cannot hide our self-reliance and we cannot hide putting our hope in anything other than Christ alone. We cannot hide these things. We may try, we may fool ourselves, we may fool one another, but we will not fool the creator of the universe. The apostle John echoes this truth in Revelation chapter 20. Listen with all your might. John said, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire too. The Lord said in verse 1, My eye is on all mankind and the tribes of Israel, His church. That means simply going to church is not sufficient, saints. It means reading your Bible and praying daily is not sufficient. It means that engaging in great ministry or small ministry, it means sharing the gospel with the lost is not sufficient. Your satisfaction and your sufficiency must come from Christ. It must come from His work on the cross. That means if you put your hope in anyone or anything other than Christ alone, even if it looks good in the Christian realm, it is a false hope and its end is agony and fire. If we determine at any point in time that we are justified before God because of the work that we have done, then we will suffer the same fate as Tyre, Gaza, and Damascus. So what hope is there for us? What hope is there for our nation? What, help, what hope is there for you and for me? Because I read this and I see myself. I am Gaza. I am Tyre. I am Damascus. I am the one who rebels against God. I am the one who is self-reliant and filled with pride. I am the one who puts my hope in gold and silver in my retirement. I'm that person. What hope is there for me? Other? How could I possibly stand in the midst of a holy God who will judge all these sins and more? Hope for the foolish. When we read this account of God bringing justice to those who put their faith in anyone or anything other than his son, it should stir in us more than a curious response. It should stir in us fear. Real fear. Because we cannot read of the accounts of Tyre and Gaza and Damascus and Hamath and say, I'm glad that we're not like they. We read those accounts and we realize that we are so much like they were and are. We say, as a country, we're like that. As a people, we're like that. Oftentimes, as a church, we're like that. And we say, I am like that. You're like that. I mean, if we're going to cut through all the religious red tape today and really come before the cross of Christ, say, that's me. That's you. A holy fear, knowing that our pride and our self-reliance will lead to agony and much fire. What hope is there? Embedded in this prophecy of divine destruction, and it was the wrath of God, there's a ray of hope so utterly profound that if we missed it, we gotta go back over it and we gotta sit on it because it's phenomenal. You heard it the first time I know, 6b and verse 7, look with me again, God said, I will cut off the pride of Philistia, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations between its teeth, it too shall be a remnant for our God, it shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites, now you, we hear that and we said, that sounds like wrath still, it's not, that's salvation, that's God moving to make a remnant for himself, The Philistines, we know this, engaged in terrible pagan worship. Pagan worship that is specifically delineated in the word of God is forbidden. Leviticus 17.10, God said, Any Israelite or any alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. Now, it was not uncommon in the pagan worship of those who lived in the region of Palestine to drink the blood of the animals they were sacrificing to God. Not uncommon. Not uncommon for them to actually take the animal sacrifice and eat the flesh of that animal as well. The abomination here that was between their teeth. Now, according to Leviticus 17.10, God is going to cut those people off. But here we have something in addition to it. He will cut them off except for whom? Except for a remnant a remnant, by God's grace, would be cleansed and spared. Not a group of people that found God worthy. Not a, people of, not a group of people who loved God. Not a group of people who followed his laws. These were people engaged in hideous pagan worship. Drinking the blood of the sacrifice and eating its flesh. The abomination between their teeth. And God said, I'm going to come in with this remnant and I will make them clean. And I will make them a people to me. We know they're not people who are worthy of salvation because we believe Romans chapter 3 where Paul said there's no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one good. There's no one who seeks after God. And so there wasn't a Philistine or a group of Philistines that God said, they're good, I will save them. They were all bad. He said, I will save some. Why? To bring himself glory. A remnant. He would choose a remnant from those engaged in pagan idolatry. He would sanctify them. He would cut off their pride. He would take away their blood. And he would overcome the abominations between their teeth. He would make them clean. And therefore they would stand before him. He being a holy God and them being filthy in their rags. They would stand before him and be made clean because of the work of Christ. They would not suffer the fate of Damascus, Tyre and Gaza. Instead, they would receive mercy. This remnant would receive grace. they should be a remnant for God. (laughs) What a surprise this must have been to Zechariah. What a surprise this must have been to the the people that this is a prophecy now, 170 years before its fulfillment, coming in the time of Christ. What 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 a surprise they must have thought. This remnant, the remnant referred to the Jews. And now, God's including Palestinians, pagan idolaters... Blood drinkers, flesh eaters. Surprised, I imagine, was an understatement. They were probably angry over it. The word remnant, in a, from a technical standpoint, it's the restored people of God. And what God says here is so hopeful for us because He says, I'm going to go beyond the borders of Jerusalem, I'm going to go beyond the borders of Judah, I'm going to go beyond Israel proper. I'm going to go beyond the promised land proper and I'm going to move out through the gospel of grace to the four corners of the world and I'm going to make a remnant for myself, said God to us. And not only would he redeem people for his own glory, he said here he'll make them princes to rule in his kingdom. It's sufficient for him to take us out of our sin and our idol worship and make us clean and then make us one of his. That's sufficient. That's worth an infinite number of hallelujahs. But he says, not only am I going to make you clean and bring you into my kingdom, I'm going to make you a prince and a princess to rule in my kingdom. You say, where do I get that? Look back at verse 7 again. God said to the prophet, it shall be like a clan. This is the remnant now. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Who were the Jebusites? The Jebusites were the original inhabitants of Jerusalem before the promised land was taken. And under King David and King Solomon, they were granted citizenship. Ekron was the northernmost city in Palestine, And he's saying, even those on the far borders of the promised land, they will be treated as though they had the original inhabitation of the holy city. In fact, the NIV renders it, they will become leaders in Judah. And that's a right translation from the Hebrew, they'll become leaders in Judah. Who will become leaders? Gentile, pagan worshipers, those made clean by God and brought in will be made leaders. Not just saved, not just brought in the kingdom, but leaders within the kingdom. This is extraordinary. Peter confirms this in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he said, of the Gentiles, you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How can this be? How can a holy God call Gentile, pagan, worshiping people into his presence? How can a holy God call me a self-reliant, pride-filled, gold-loving, peace-hating, God-rebelling sinner into his kingdom. How does that happen? How is it possible? You remember back in Zechariah 2.11, the prophecy was that God, would, God said, Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. And just a few weeks ago in Zechariah chapter 8, many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will come and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. There's a universal theme of the gospel of redemption. It wasn't just for Jerusalem or Judah or Israel or the children of Abraham. It was for the world to go out repeated in Psalms and Isaiah and Amos and Micah and Joel, and it's repeated again and again and again. But I want you to notice, this is not an undiscriminating universalism. This is not everybody come in as you are, be as you are, stay as you are. Not undiscriminating. I am so thankful that this gospel does not bind us to things like language and culture and place and time and education and finances. It blows those boundaries away. The gospel says, I don't care about your skin color. I don't care about your language. And I don't care where you were born. I don't care about your parents. The gospel doesn't care about any of those things. But it does care deeply and intimately about right worship. And so it will not bring in someone who will say, I will remain faithful to my idol. It discriminates against paganism, it discriminates against idolatry. It does not compromise in this area and that's why God first makes them clean and then brings them in did you notice that he takes away their pride he covers the blood guilt he takes the the abomination of the flesh between their teeth he makes them clean and then he brings them in why he's a holy God they must be made clean first in the new testament we call it what a new heart a new creation he brings them in makes them holy as he is holy Now, the fulfillment of this prophecy goes way beyond Alexander the Great. In fact, there's no time in our recorded history following Alexander the Great where the Philistines came to a saving grace in Christ and actually were joined into the body of God. It was to another time. It was to a future time. A time when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the church and people of every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to see God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it was through the work of Christ on the cross that this question of how is answered. It's through the work of Jesus Christ, his broken body and his spilled blood, that you and I and all who have rebelled against God can repent and believe and be brought in and made holy. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the remnant. For those that God would choose to redeem and wash clean through the sacrifice of his son That means that you and I and all who repent and believe and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved from the great judgment that was poured out on Tyre and Gaza and Damascus and one day this country too. One day the United States of America will see the wrath of God poured out. And your allegiance to Christ and Christ alone will be your saving grace. Jesus Christ is, by shedding his blood, took away the blood guilt from us, our drinking the blood of idols. When Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross, his broken body, his flesh, was sacrificed to forgive the sins, the abomination of the flesh that we hold in our own teeth. By humbling himself, as Paul said in Philippians 2, and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, God is able to forgive and destroy the deep seated pride and rebellion that reigns in the heart of man to forgive us of those sins as well. In the book of Acts, we actually see this movement out to the Philistines. Philip, Acts chapter 8, verse 40, goes and shares the gospel with the people at Ashdod, the same city that was destroyed here by Alexander the Great in 332 BC. And now what are they getting? They're getting the gospel of grace shared by Philip. Lydda and Joppa in Acts chapter 9, Peter begins to share the gospel and it moves from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to where? To San Jose, to California, to the United States. We are at the end of the earth, right? You realize? Spin the globe, we're on the other side. It's us too. And it goes out. But this fulfillment, without exception, it's moving now, it's being fulfilled now, but it finds its final fulfillment. In the book of Revelation, chapter seven, verses nine and 10, listen to what John writes. He's seeing this multitude. He's seeing the remnant. In verse nine, he writes, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, They were wearing white robes. Why? They've been made clean. And they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. This is the hope that every foolish person has. This is the hope of every nation. This is the hope of every tribe and every tongue and every people. This is the hope of every pride-filled, self-reliant, idol-worshiping person ever born of Adam. This is your hope. This is my hope. This is the hope of Camden Avenue. It's the only hope we have for this country. Salvation belongs to God. He saves. He makes us clean. He chooses a remnant for himself for his own glory. And so on the one hand, we hear this and we rejoice and our hearts soar and we say, yes, amen, let it be, Lord. But at the same time, on the other side, there's, this, there's a fear to that. There's a, an angst to it. Because if, if what God is saying here is true, if we're hearing it correctly and I'm teaching it correctly, then this is a most terrifying message because what it's asking us is to surrender completely. What it's saying to us, if we don't want to end up like Tyre and Sidon and Gaza and Damascus, that means that we individually, we collectively as a church, we as a nation must surrender and follow God completely. We must put away our silver and our gold. We must stop relying upon our wisdom and our possessions and our technology. Our technology. We must stop relying upon our technology. We must surrender our lives entirely to God and put our faith and our trust in Him because He saves. We must put our hope in Christ because Christ's blood saves. That is a fearful thing because what God is asking us here is to become fully obedient to Him in all ways. It means whatever idol, whatever false God, whatever false hope you've placed in your life, God's saying, you better destroy it or you will be destroyed. You better, by the power of the Holy Spirit, kill and mortify these idols or you will end up like Tyre in fire or Gaza writhing. So how do we overcome this fear? Because it is a fearful thing. How do we not fall down now and be paralyzed Because paralysis is not what God's looking for. A right fear of the Lord, yes, but not paralysis. He wants us to walk in that fear, to grow in that fear. So, how do we do it? Point number three the security of the remnant. God knows that we are like grass, He knows that we're made from dust. He knows that we're fragile creatures and he knows that a word like this will come and for many it'll be too heavy and we'll be crushed and broken. But the Bible says that Jesus, a bruised reed, he will not break. So how do we hear this and not be broken and devastated? He ends this passage in verse 8 with a most encouraging word. What is this encouraging word? First he says, listen, I'm going to pour out my wrath and I'm going to be a just God on those nations who are are against me and my people. And then he says, he reveals that there's a hope for the remnant. Not because they're worthy, but because God will make them worthy. He'll make them clean and bring them in and make them rulers in his kingdom. But there's a, there's a peace here that should bring even greater encouragement. And he says, listen, I'm going to provide you with a permanent security system. <laughs> I'm going to provide you with a permanent security system. So not only will I not judge you, I will pour out my mercy upon you. Not only will I make you king, I make you clean and bring you into my kingdom, but I will secure that both now and forever. Look at verse eight. Verse eight is such an amazing verse. God said, then I, he's referring to himself, then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Having cleansed the people with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, having sent them into exile and now bringing them back, God brings them a promise here, and the promise is, he says, I'm going to camp, that's literally tabernacle, we know that term. He's going to tabernacle, he's going to abide with, he's going to live with them. His people, he's going to be their God and he's going to serve them in this capacity. He says, I'm going to be your divine warrior. I'm going to be your bodyguard. And no one will march to and fro over you ever again. We heard a similar prophecy for those of you who remember back in Zechariah 2. Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And then he said, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. Now, if the prophecy pertaining to the destruction of these nations did not fly during the time of Alexander the Great with the restoration of the Philistines, it certainly does not fly here. This is a sign that God said, I will never, ever allow them to march to and fro over you again. With the exception of Jerusalem, that happened in full during the time of Alexander the Great. In fact, during that time, Josephus tells us, now this is the historical record, this is not Bible, so don't take it as such. Josephus tells us in his, his uh, writings that Alexander the Great had a dream in Macedonia pertaining to The Jews. And he had this dream. He had a dream. The high priest, Jadua, came out to him with the other priests and the people of the city, and they offered peace. And as a result, according to Josephus, the city was spared. Now, whether or not that's true, pertaining to this prophecy, it's irrelevant. Because the historical record we have here When he says, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them. That is a permanent guardianship. And we know the history of Jerusalem and the Jewish people following Alexander the Great was not great. We know. There are several examples. The the, uh, Seleucid emperor, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. He came in in 163. He was down in Egypt doing some battle, and he thought the Jews were rebelling. And this is what we get from Second Maccabees. Listen, Antiochus Epiphanes thought that Judah was in revolt, raging like a wild animal. We are told he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. This is 167. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met, and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgin and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. That's not a good guard if God was saying, in this time. So following Alexander the Great, this prophecy was not fulfilled. Rome followed. Rome came, and we know the oppression that Rome brought, and we know the destruction that Rome brought. In 70 A.D., The temple fell and the city was destroyed, and the Jews were dispersed. So, this prophecy of protection and guardianship could not be pertaining to the physical temple, and it could not be pertaining to the city, the actual physical city of Jerusalem. So, what is he talking about here? Who is this this prophecy for? When would it take place? He said, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them for I now see with my eyes. 500 years later, 500 years after this prophecy came to Zechariah, Jesus Christ said something of equal boldness. A proclamation and promise Divine guardianship. And Jesus Christ not only said that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled, but He said, I'm the one who's going to do it. I will read to you from Matthew chapter 16. Listen closely. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now listen to this. He said, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It will. It, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And our Lord takes the play on words and he reveals something so magnificent and so encouraging that if we get it, we can leave here with security in our salvation in the Lord, his guardianship, his warriorship. I want you to notice first that we see this promise of protection is not for a city or a temple, a physical temple, but it's for a body, an ecclesia in the Greek. And that means an assembled people. What do we have here this morning? An assembled body of believers. His church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. God sparing Jerusalem in the time of Alexander the Great was a foreshadowing of how God would spare and guard his church through Christ throughout the centuries. I mean, Alexander the Great was a most formidable enemy and yet Jerusalem did not fall. Hades is the most formidable enemy and yet God says, just as we had a chance to sing this morning, his church will not fall. Christ will protect his people. God says, I will come and encamp his dwelling here on earth in the house that is his church, the ultimate guardian being Jesus Christ, that even the gates of Hades will not overcome his bride. And that means that this prophecy is being fulfilled at this very moment. It means that Jesus Christ has been guarding and protecting, is guarding and protecting, and will guard and protect his bride, his church, the Ecclesia, until he comes again in all of his glory. You're safe in him. His church is safe. The bride is well guarded. So that none shall march to and fro and so that no oppressor shall again march over it. On the cross when Christ said it is finished Satan thought he won. And yet Christ had completed the work that was necessary not only to call and assemble people and make people holy but to keep them secure forever and ever. Jesus Christ won on the cross. In other words, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God bound his people together securely forever. Now this great promise, saints, offered to his people, should force us to look at the dominions of darkness in our lives and to ask the questions, what can prevail? Who can prevail against God's church? Jesus said here that the gates of Hades, the power of hell, cannot overcome his church. That means there is no power on heaven or on earth. No spiritual power, no physical power. No Alexander the Great, no Satan himself that can come against God's people. You're secure in him. Do you know that? If you're filled with fear and anxiety, do you know that? if you struggle daily with insecurity, do you know how secure you are in Christ if you're in Christ? Paul said, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, his church, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Safe. Jesus says to us this morning, I am your divine warrior. Have no fear. Does it mean there'll be no trouble in our life? Of course not. Does it mean there won't be persecution? Of course not. Does it mean that we won't go through hard trustful times? Of course not. But in all those times you must remind yourself: Christ is my king, Christ is my Lord, He is in power. I don't have anything to fear. Not the gates of Hades, not the power of hell will separate us from our Savior. And you got to tell yourself that. As you're on the brink of losing your job, as your marriage is, is, is tattered and broken, as your children have gone astray, as the economy collapses and the world comes unraveled, you must just say to yourself, my God, my king, my divine warrior is real. But there's something else to this Matthew 16 passage, which is so amazing. A second piece to this guardianship that we cannot let go unnoticed. Verse 18, Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus said, I tell you that you are Peter Petras, and upon this rock Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I apologize for the Greek, but it's necessary here. If you hear this and get it, you'll realize not only is there great security in Christ as the guardian of his church, but you're called to guard as well. Let me show you. Be patient with me, will you? Our Lord uses a play on words intentionally to convey a double meaning and calls us to participate in guarding. He says on the one hand, on this rock, in the Greek it's petra, and he's saying, he's patting his chest, on this rock I will build my church. And we know that. The Old Testament talks about, the New Testament talks about Christ being the rock of our salvation, right? The rock upon whom we are to build our lives. And if we do what? Then when the rains fall and the winds blow, we will not fall. So we know on the one hand, he's saying that I am your guardian. Build your life. Build the church on me. But then he flips this. And he says to Peter, you are Petras. Not Petra, rock. Petras, little rock. Even better, in the Aramaic, it's, it's Kephas. And that means hollow rock. Now, this is one of those that I dug into and I struck it and I'm like, this is pure gold because Petras, Kephas is a hollow rock. He can't have anything built on him unless he's what? Unless he's filled, unless he's filled with the Holy Spirit. But once filled with the Holy Spirit, now Petras, Kephas, Little Rock, Hollow Rock can be a guardian of the church too. Who is that? That's you, that's me, the remnant, called to guard and honor the Ecclesia, God's holy church, to fight for his church, to keep oppressors from marching to and fro, from bringing harm to God's people. Not acting independent of our Lord, but standing firmly upon Him as hollow rocks filled by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will give you, Petras, little rock, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And Pastor Todd talked about this last week. This guardianship has personal responsibility. We are to guard the church. That means that we bind people when they come in through their profession of faith, through the waters of baptism, through the the communion of the Lord's Supper, and by seeing them bear much fruit. And we bind them to a body of believers and we say, this person knows Christ. And we testify to that. We declare it. We don't make them believers, we declare they are believers. And that guards his church. That prevents wolves from coming in in sheep's clothing and devouring the sheep. It prevents that little bit of yeast coming in and affecting its way through the whole dough. And it means that the church also, when it realizes there's a wolf or there's yeast in their midst, we're to loosen. What does that mean? We're to let go. We're to remove from the presence of His church as guardians those who have come to bring heresy and destruction. We say, well, that doesn't sound very loving. I don't think it's very loving to leave someone in the church who will devour the bride of Christ. I don't think it's very loving for yeast to come in and infect God's ecclesia. If we love Christ first, then we will love his church properly. If we love man first, then we will allow a little yeast to make its way through the whole batch of dough. Jesus promises to guard his church. And then he commissions us by his power and strength to guard it as well. There's one last piece here, and then I will close. The last words of this prophecy. God says in the uh, ESV, now I see with my own eyes. The NIV, I like the rendering a little better. It says, now I am keeping watch. God says, now in the very present moment, I am keeping watch. He's not watching from afar. He's watching here. And he's not watching from history, he's watching now. Jesus Christ, our divine warrior, is standing at this very moment in our midst, guarding his glory and the glory of his Father through his church. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that a four year old can answer. No pressure. If God, the creator of the universe, is standing watch over his church right now, if God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen, the very one who holds the galaxies in his hand, is watching over this church and you every moment of every day, if he says to you, I promise never leave you nor forsake you, if he says to you, the good work that I start in you I will bring to fruition until the day of my son, if that is true, then I will ask you, as I would ask a four-year-old, what are we so worried about? Why are are we such a dither over things? Why the anxiety? Why the stress? Why? If this is true, I started off my day yesterday in prayer with my wife on a glorious walk in the early morning hours. And I thought to myself, what a glorious day this is going to be. After I got home from that walk, my day disintegrated into an absolute mess by the evening. I sinned in my anger. I sinned with my tongue. I sinned in my heart. And I was discouraged. And I had no desire to preach today. And that night, as I went back to look back over the sermon, the passage, I hit verse 8. And I thought, what a fool I am that I would allow those struggles to cause me to be discouraged or despondent. And I preached to myself, and I said, God is my king, Christ is my warrior. He is guarding my heart and mind from the very power of Satan himself. He will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. He will never lose me. I am secure in him and I repented of those sins and he washed me clean and here I am preaching. Saints, God offers us his remnant this morning. Grace instead of judgment. He offers us this morning holiness instead of slavery to sin. He offers us the remnant this morning, the security and peace that has the power to guard our hearts and minds. As Paul says in Philippians, that peace which transforms all understanding, right? That you can have that guardianship every moment of every day because of who he is and what he has done this great promise that he will save you, that he will clean you and that he will hold you until he comes again in glory, until he brings you home one or the other and that's why we say all glory and honor and power be to him forever and ever what is our response to this prophecy so extraordinary Some of you say, I don't believe it. I'll pray for you. Some of you say, I believe it, but I don't have the security that it should have in my life. Pray for yourself. Ask God to show you the gospel of grace daily. Some of you say, I believe with all my might and I love the security and guardianship it offers. What do I do with it? I'll read one passage in closing prayer. 1 Peter chapter 1. So what is our response? In this you greatly rejoice. Right response to this word. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may, have, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to you so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Though we have not seen him, we love him. And though even though we do not see him now, we believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible glorious joy. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for treating lightly this most powerful prophecy of your holy word. Forgive us for diminishing or even ignoring the wrath that you will pour out on all those who refuse to repent and believe and put their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, individually and collectively as one church for not guarding your honor, for not defending the ecclesia, for not fighting for the purity of your bride. Forgive us Father for our anxiety and insecurities and fear not a fear of you but a fear of man. Forgive us for not seeing that you through your son Jesus Christ stand guard every moment of every day that your son the divine warrior said that not the very gates of Hades can prevail against your holy ones. Give us the wisdom To preach these truths to ourselves. Give us the, the, the desire to preach these truths to one another so that we will become a holy ecclesia, a holy gathering, a holy church set apart to bring you honor and glory. So that when the trials come, and we know they will, when the temptations come, and we know they will, we will stand firm on the rock, the Petra, who is Christ. We will not be blown about by the winds or tossed about by the waves but we will stand secure, a holy people, a hollow rock filled with your spirit, living as you've called us to live, serving one another in love, sharing the gospel with the lost, being a people, a people that once were not but now are because of Christ, being a people that do not live by sight but by faith. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that do not put our hope in our money or our portfolios or our retirement or even other people, but in you, in you alone. Grow our faith, I pray, Lord, for we are weak. Make us holy and clean us, Lord, for we are stained with sin. Show us your guardianship so that we might strike a mortal wound in fear and anxiety and stress forever, that we might walk boldly in you. I pray you would bless this church. Bless your ecclesia here at Camden Avenue Baptist Church. Bless all those who come through these doors with your son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel itself. Bless the visitor and the member alike with a sense of of purpose and direction in pursuing Christ. Bless the members, Lord, with the desire to guard your body. We praise you for this time. We praise you for your word. We praise you for being God, for you're worthy of it all. I pray these things in your son's holy, powerful name. Amen.